Well, good evening and welcome to this first event in the Summer of Jake. Uh, over the last few years, I've enjoyed expanding something from the pastoral epistles uh, at each Jake conference. Uh, last year, we looked at Titus chapter one. So this year, we're going to be looking at Titus chapter two, which seems appropriate for a junior Anglican evangelical conference. So let me read from uh, Titus chapter two in the English Standard Version. Please do have your Bibles open and uh, read along with me uh, and I'll be uh, um, unpacking it a bit as we go. So have it open in front of you so you can uh, see what we're talking about. Titus 2 verse 1. Paul says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behaviour, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Let me just pray as we come to look at this more closely. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your words, the Bible. We thank you that you have graciously chosen to reveal yourself and your ways to us in this book, that we might know you and live lives that are pleasing to you in every way. Please help us now to understand and apply Titus 2, that we might uh, live a life that is pleasing to you as ministers of the gospel, as younger men and women of the faith in an age which doesn't know you or appreciate these things. Please help me to speak clearly and give us all an understanding heart to, uh, to see what is said in your word. I pray that the technology will work well this evening for our time together. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, what causes should I be devoted to? What should I give my time, talents and treasures to if I want to really make a difference in this world? These are common questions, particularly for uh, teenagers or for young adults, particularly in the early stages of their careers. Uh, that is, you know, before they hit midlife like me and starting to think about their pensions or something else. As we learn more about ourselves and our world, we try to find our niche in the world, work out what we're here for. It's quite natural to ask, what can I do to make a real impact? And the world out there has many and various causes that it would like us to join. Causes such as uh, recycling or anti-racism or the redistribution of wealth or even the revolutionary overturning of the elites. We're invited to consider sticking it to the man, and it usually is a man, you know, to those in authority. We're urged to purify ourselves of attitudes from the wrong side of history and to cleanse ourselves of the people who promote those ideas. Deplatform, defund, decolonize. These are the great causes that will vie for our attention on Twitter and Instagram. The great righteous crusades of our moment. How dare you not get involved? and give yourself heart and soul to the movement. Well, compared to that, uh, Titus chapter two is seemingly very mundane indeed, isn't it? Yes, uh, Titus three will tell us something about how to relate to the authorities, but not in the way that you might think. But Titus two here, well, it's got nothing at all to say about environmentalism, about Black Lives Matter, about communism, the NHS, trans rights or feminism as such. There's nothing here about how to make your nation great again, about draining the swamp or levelling up or anything like that. And yet Titus 2 tells us about God's great cause. And it invites junior Anglican evangelicals everywhere to join this cause for the glory of God and the good of his world. Now, to join God's cause will mean going up against powerful vested interests. It will mean engaging potent cultural forces and entrenched opinions. It will be a struggle every day. But a powerful leader is provided our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, and a glorious future is promised, our blessed hope, when he comes again. But you know, that's not the way that everybody sees things here. Some people have looked at uh, Titus chapter 2 and rather scoffed. I mean, it's all very bourgeois, isn't it? It's also middle class, a list of good behaviours. Verse 5 says, the young women should be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands. And why? So that the word of God 
may not be reviled. This is how you do virtue signalling in first century Crete, which is where Titus is. Teach them to be good little housewives so that people won't be nasty about our faith, so that we can keep the show on the road for a little bit longer. And the men, well, it says the same thing to the men, be self-controlled. And you, Titus, well, you teach nicely, verse 8, with sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. You know, behave nicely like decent, well-spoken members of Cretan society, so that no one will say anything bad about us. And the slaves... Well, they're told not to argue back in, uh, to their masters or to nick stuff. Uh, verse 10, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. Make Christianity look good in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of Cretan society. Conform to the expectations of the culture around us so that it won't criticise us. And maybe, maybe. It will even want to join us. Well, some people call that idea uh, missionary accommodation. Live like the culture around you in order to reach it or to survive. Signal your virtue in terms that the world understands so that they won't hate you. But the implication of that is that the things taught here in Titus 2 are not universal or for all time. They simply reflect the moral climate and the cultural mores of that particular time and that particular place. So we can and should change how we behave as Christians as our culture changes. My wife and I um, actually went to a church service somewhere midweek recently. Well, back when we didn't have to worry too much about physically going to church services. Um, It wasn't at our own church, but somewhere else. Uh, The lectionary readings that day were from uh, Leviticus and Titus 2. There was a young ordinant preaching. Well, not preaching so much as just sort of giving a gloss on the readings as we went along. After Leviticus, uh, he told us uh, and the young audience who were also there how important it was that God gave us rules to live by. Rules are very important, he said. They tell us how to live. That was the the, uh, message from the Old Testament lesson. Then later, somebody read from Titus chapter 2. The ordinand then told us that if we were to follow the teaching of this reading, we should actually ignore some of the things that it says because they are wrong now. Our culture is different, we were told, so we don't follow the things that it says here anymore if we want to live in a way that is acceptable and respectable in our culture. So do you see what's going on there? The Old Testament is good giving us rules to live by. And the New Testament is out of date with its rules, which we are free to abandon if they don't suit us or our culture anymore. 
there was no sense of irony at all. And no prizes either for guessing which bits he thought were out of date. It wasn't the bit about being sober-minded or doing good works or not stealing from work. My wife had an interesting conversation with him afterwards about how he had basically told her in his talk that her whole life is a waste of time because loving your husband and children and being busy working in the home is apparently passe now and not what God wants. Well, I don't know if um, if his encounter with a fearsomely intelligent and theologically well-educated woman will have changed his mind or not. But I do pray for that ordinant because he's going to find it very hard in ministry, working out what to say to people each week when modern morality seems to change every time you refresh your Facebook feed. If we're motivated by a desire to accommodate to the world so that it will be nice to us, if that's our ultimate agenda, then that's what we're committing ourselves to, isn't it? We are asking the world to set our agenda for us, giving it authority over the church and permission to dole out our marching orders as it sees fit. Now, uh, call me an old fundamentalist, but I just can't quite believe that the man who said in Titus chapter one that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts and lazy gluttons is really telling us in the very next chapter that the church should accommodate its morality to whatever suits our changeable culture, just so that people will be nice to us and we can all get along. No, isn't that rather what the false teachers in Crete were doing? Paul says those false teachers had devoted themselves to the commands of people who turn away from the truth. What does Paul say at the end of Titus 1? They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So I think it's it's much more likely, therefore, that in Titus chapter two, Paul is saying this. Don't be like that. Don't be like that. But as for you, he says, be different to the world. Live out the gospel. And that will stop any slander because people will see that it's an attractive lifestyle and that you are consistent with your principles. That's the main issue. Life and lip must go together. So walk the walk, not just talk the talk. People appreciate consistency, even if they don't live like that themselves. Maybe especially if they don't live like that themselves. And the gospel produces a lifestyle in believers that is truly beautiful and magnetic especially in a society like first century Crete, which thought that highway robbery was a noble pursuit, as Cicero put it. A gospel lifestyle is the opposite of a carnal, cruel, Cretan lifestyle dominated by pragmatism and misdirected zeal. 
Now, what's happening here in these two different readings of the chapter that I've talked about is that the cultural accommodation idea is overreading the Hina clauses in verses one to ten. Hina is one of the uh, one of the Greek words for so that. And you'll find it there in verse five, in verse eight, verse ten. It's all so that the word of God may not be reviled, so that an opponent may be put to shame, so that they'll have nothing evil to say about us, so that in everything we may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. But those hinner clauses are not giving us the ultimate reasons and motivations for living in the ways outlined in these verses. They tell us some of the fruits of living that way. That's true. But if we make it all about living in a way that outsiders won't revile you, we will make it all about the moving target of the culture around us. And we will overlook some of the important things in this chapter, which are even more critical than having a good reputation with outsiders. Because verse one is more important. And so is the hinge of this chapter in verse 11. That's where the real engines are located in this chapter. That's where we find out the real motivations for joining the cause. So let's look at verse one and verses 11 onwards under two headings. The first is in verse one. It says healthy doctrine leads to a healthy life. Healthy doctrine healthy life. Verse one, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So everything that Paul says in the next nine verses is an exposition of what that means. He tells us what kind of lifestyle matches sound doctrine, because healthy doctrine leads to healthy lifestyles, just as surely as an unhealthy diet leads to an unhealthy body. You know, apparently eating Mars bars all day and never doing any exercise uh, will have an inevitable effect on your physical well-being. That diet is not in accord with a healthy lifestyle. Some of us had to learn this the hard way. But it's also a very hard lesson to learn spiritually, too. Doctrine is not an abstract thing up here. It's not amoral and it's not immoral. It has practical effects, whether you can see and spell out all the um, experiential implications of every nuance in your doctrine or not. They are there. Each rock of doctrine creates ripples of real-time responses and reactions when you throw it into the church. That's why we have to get our doctrine right, because it really, really matters on the ground. After all, how you interpret a Hinner clause can make the difference between being a liberal 
who encourages people to disregard bits of the Bible that they find culturally inconvenient, thus splitting the church and undermining the apostolic faith by exchanging biblical morality for the latest bandwagon, and being a faithful Anglican who encourages men and women in your church to live their everyday lives in a way that pleases God. Big difference from misinterpreting a hina clause, a single Greek word. So how much more important is it to get the big doctrinal issues right, such as the doctrine of the Trinity, the authority of scripture, Christology, ecclesiology, eschatology. I mean, who knows what craters of ignorance and immorality it might create in the church if we are not clear and correct about those doctrines. Teach what accords with sound doctrine, says Paul. Because doctrine must be fleshed out and applied in concrete situations. And because we mustn't think that it's obvious to everyone. It needs spelling out. The dots need to be connected. A misshapen ministry of all doctrine and no application will lead to misshapen Christians in the pews. As Calvin, John Calvin, says in his sermon on this passage, God has not given us his word simply that it might beat against our ears and for us to let whatever we hear slip away into the air. But he wants us to find pasture there that our lives may be regulated by it. And to sum it up, that we should show by our deeds that we have not wasted our time being taught in this school. Now, many of us at Jake are at Theological College or about to go there. College is a great place to be learning doctrine and how doctrine applies. You can't learn the theory in isolation from the practice because they go together. So I hope you'll be encouraged in your time at college to always consider the implications of what you're learning. But college should also be a time where we learn how to teach these things, because that's what this passage is saying. Yes, um, I know that the congregations on Crete are reading this letter over Bishop Titus's shoulder, as it were. But, uh, you know, they'll, they'll see it and they'll hear it. But it's also a letter to Bishop Titus himself, reminding him of his task. He needs to teach people about these connections. Ministers need to develop the skills, not just to know the truth, but how to teach sound doctrine and everything that is in harmony with it and leads from it. Titus 2 verse 15 says he is to declare, exhort and rebuke and let no one disregard what he is teaching. That's not easy to do. We, we all need help and advice, all the help and advice that we can get on how to be more effective at this so that people will actually listen. As you can see, we all need to work at that. I mean, 
how do you teach this chapter without it simply becoming a new stone tablet of do's and don'ts, a legalistic list of moral directives? Ponder that as we see Paul modelling it for us. Does he declaim from on high against everybody's sins in a high-handed and self-righteous way? Ponder his teaching method. But what is it then that accords with sound doctrine in this passage? Notice what Paul does. He joins the dots for four different groups of people and for Titus himself. He talks to older men, younger women, uh, sorry, older men, older women, younger women, younger men. It's a sort of inclusio, isn't it? The chiasm. Uh, and he also speaks to Timothy himself. So let's just let's just unpack some of the detail. Uh, interestingly, everybody in this passage is told that they must be self-controlled. It's repeated so that we don't miss it. And here's the point. Here's the point. Sound doctrine produces self-control. The lack of self-control means there's a problem in the doctrine. There's a doctrinal issue behind a lack of self-control. Paul is a pastor, so he also addresses each group of people in a way that's distinctive to them. He doesn't speak to each and every individual situation with all their eccentricities and exceptions, but there's something particular in each application. So men are to be sober-minded, dignified, sound in love and steadfastness. Because imagine a man, an older man, who was the opposite of those things. Imagine a man who lacks dignity, who is frivolous and silly. Imagine an older man whose mind is flighty and easily intoxicated, who is aloof and unloving and who can't stick at anything. More than that, who is content to be such a man. Well, if that's what a Christian looks like, it won't commend the gospel. How can we teach older men to be more like this description that Paul gives? A few years ago, I had the great joy of being a consultant for Regent College Vancouver with regards to their library of rare 16th and 17th century books. Many of those books were donated to Regent by Jim Packer, who sadly died this last weekend and who I was privileged to know over many years. One of the books, uh, one of the old books um, which he donated was a 17th century commentary on Titus by a man called Thomas Taylor. I recommended that many of these books should be uh, digitised actually while I was there, uh, so you may be able to read this online. Uh, Thomas Taylor says this about Titus chapter 2 verse 2. Why is soundness of faith required particularly of old men since it's a grace that everyone, young and as well as old, must strive for. Because they have had the use of the word for longer, therefore their profit should be answerable to their means. Every man must labour 
to recompense the decay of nature with increase of grace, the weakness of the body with soundness of mind, the failing of the outward man with the fortifying of the inward. Well, this, I would like to say, was very much a description of Dr. Packer himself. Even into his 90s, when he was even more frail and physically weak than usual, he retained not just a healthy sense of humility and humour, but an active love for God and his word, and a very healthy desire to continue learning and growing. I found that even more inspiring, almost, than his many excellent books and articles. He was the greatest Anglican theologian of our age, and he exemplified Titus 2 verse 2, sound in faith, if not in body, for much of his life. Older women are to be reverent, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Imagine older women who are the opposite of that. They give in to every urge to gossip or glug. Will they train the younger women to know what is good? I find it interesting, actually, that the word for sober-minded and, and this warning about being slaves to much wine, they're attached to the older men and the older women, not the younger ones, who we might more easily assume are the ones out on the town of an evening overindulging. No, no, as uh, Thomas Taylor said, this age, this old age, being full of infirmity, a cold and dry age, it is more desirous to strengthen, warm and moisten itself with wine and strong drink, and without great watchfulness, easily overshoots itself. The word warns us what to watch out for. Imagine younger women who don't think that loving their husbands and loving their children and being busy about the place is an important calling on them as Christians. Imagine if they're not kind, but harsh. Will this lead to harmonious marriages in Cretan church, where Titus is, or in your church for that matter? False teaching in Crete was upsetting whole families, we were told, and making people rebellious. What is the effect of that kind of teaching over the many, many years? What will people say about this Christianity lark if that is the culture in church circles? Now, what do we have to do for people to live like this in accordance with sound doctrine? Well, after telling Titus um, that younger Christian men should be self-controlled and work on that because it's the one thing that he says to them, he also urges Titus to be their role model because healthy doctrine has to lead to healthy lifestyles in teachers, in pastors too. If we are 
in all respects a model of good works, it shows in our teaching, in our integrity, in our dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned. That will lead the way for others. But imagine a Titus, um, a minister, a bishop who was the opposite of this whose teaching did not have integrity because it wasn't in accord with the doctrine they pledged to uphold at their ordination or consecration. Imagine a bishop without dignity who sounded off on Twitter without a second thought and alienated half of their congregation with ill-judged words. Imagine a curate who lampooned and larked around and slandered others in a Facebook or WhatsApp group. What effect would that have? Imagine an evangelical incumbent whose life was not, in every respect, a model of good works. What would people say about the church? Paul says there should be sound speech so that an opponent may have nothing evil to say about us. Do you notice that? It's plural there. It's us. In other words, when church leaders teach badly and behave badly, it affects not just them, but all of us. Don't you feel that? Don't you feel that in the Church of England today? In the evangelical part of the Church of England today? Where some of us have not lived as Titus is here urged to live, it has an impact on all of us. There can be accusations that we're all like that. People assume the worst. They extrapolate. The more I see of what goes on in every part of the church, the more personally painful it can be. As Calvin says somewhere, a true and genuine pastor looks upon the sins of others with grief. Nevertheless, we must put up with many things which we are unable to correct, he says, and if we cannot remedy them, we should weep. Bond servants, slaves, are to be submissive to their masters, to do a good job and not to steal stuff from them. Because imagine a servant who became a Christian and then lived like that still. What would the master think about this new religion, Christianity? But imagine a slave who becomes a Christian and then starts being an even better worker. Would that not adorn the doctrine of God, our saviour? But just a moment to, to pause there, because we, we've got a mention of slavery here. And I realise that in our current cultural moment, this could be problematic. Paul doesn't abolish slavery here. So um, perhaps we ought to no platform him, burn our Bibles, tear down the statues of Paul, smash all his stained glass windows, rename the churches and cathedrals. Well, I think that would be unfair. 
But some people can suck venom from even the most wholesome food, as Calvin put it. So let's think about how to address this concern. Slavery was was not a racial thing in first century Crete or in the first century world as a whole. It was not the same as slavery as it existed in the 19th century in southern America, for example, as you'd expect. It wasn't a black and white thing. We should be clear on that. But slavery is still not a very pleasant thought, is it? So what do we do with verses about slaves? The things asked of bond servants here are right for any working situation, and that's why they're asked of slaves. But slavery itself isn't being taught as a norm like other relationships. For instance, um, marriage is there in creation. And in Ephesians chapter five, for example, is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. Uh, For the relationship of um, parents to children, we have the fifth commandment and Ephesians chapter six, for example. But Paul doesn't appeal to anything like that for the institution of slavery. Where it exists, the morality urged of Christian slaves is the same as required for any Christian worker. But Paul never says, You're a slave because that's what God wills. Therefore, deal with it. No, Paul encourages Christian bond servants to leave that state if they can. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And he encourages Philemon to free Onesimus. He tells slaves how to live in this present age if they're Christians. Not that slavery is right and good of itself. But look, here's the rub. What Paul is doing in this chapter so far is showing what kind of lifestyle accords with healthy doctrine. That's the point of all this. The ultimate reason for all of these nitty gritty applications is not to do with those hinner clauses in verses 1 to 10. It's ultimately all down to the gar in verse 11. The word for is the hinge of this chapter. If we look at verses 1 to 10 in isolation, maybe we can focus too much on the idea that healthy gospel living should stop people saying bad things about the church. But if we put those verses into the context of the chapter as a whole, it's much clearer what's going on. Basically, Paul says, Teach what accords with sound doctrine to these various different groups of people so that their behaviour adorns the gospel, since it's in accordance with the gospel, because. And then there are two reasons in verses 11 to 14. There are two great motivations for teaching gospel living. That's my final point. Verses 11 to 14 tell us why we should live like verses 1 to 10. They are the theological fuel which drives healthy gospel living. Paul says that the grace which saves us also trains us. And he says that Jesus came to redeem and to purify. Now, obviously, I know that verses 11 to 14 deserve a whole sermon or a whole series of sermons to themselves. 
but um, I've expanded on them a little bit more in a chapter of my book, The Forgotten Cross, if you want to uh, chase that up uh, yourself a little bit uh, later. But my main focus tonight is on the main flow of this chapter, because I want to show how it anchors its lifestyle imperatives to healthy doctrine rather than to the cultural mores of one particular time and place. And that's clear, isn't it? That's clear from a brief look. So what, what is it that, um, that you should teach which accords with sound doctrine? Um, you see it in verses 1 to 10. Why teach that? Well, because the grace which saves all kinds of people, men and women, young and old, slave and free, also trains us. It doesn't take us as we are and leave us that way. It moves us, impels us, drives us, trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, such as all those that we've talked about, drunkenness, irreverence, unkindness, lack of integrity, undignified behaviour, argumentativeness, stealing. Those are ungodly and indulge mere worldly desires, such as everyone in our surrounding culture might indulge. And grace teaches us to say no to those things and to say yes to self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. That general description, self-controlled, upright and godly, applies to all the things we've seen in this passage. It means it is godly for older men to be sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. It is godly in general for older women to teach younger women to be submissive to their husbands and be busy working at home. This is the lifestyle that pleases God in the present age. This is how the gospel applies to our relationships, our religion, our responsibilities in this present age. But there is also an age to come. And this is what is also meant to motivate our behaviour. We are waiting for our blessed hope. We are waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And what a God and Saviour he is. He is glorious and great. And yet his glorious greatness is revealed most of all just in the first five words of verse 14. Do you see those? He gave himself for us. He was great and glorious, and yet he gave himself up for us, for foul, smelly sinners. He is our blessed hope, and yet he gave himself up for those of us who were not sound in faith, not sober, not submissive, not self-controlled. He gave himself up precisely to redeem us from all, all lawlessness. He gave himself up, intending to purify for himself a people 
who were anything but pure to start with. His purpose was to create a people, the elect, according to Titus chapter 1, verse 1, who are zealous for good works. So you see, the incarnation, the atonement, the resurrection, the ascension and the second coming of Christ are all focused on getting us to renounce ungodliness, to be rescued, redeemed from lawlessness and purified of our sin. So the only thing that could possibly be in accord with such sound doctrine is for us to live a life of good works. And that's what the first 10 verses describe. So if we reject or neglect or ignore any of these lifestyle points in verses 1 to 10, we're missing something about the incarnation, the atonement, the resurrection, the ascension and the second coming of Christ. And our good works are not meant to be driven by our culture's definition of what is good and right and true. Worldly morality, have you noticed this? Worldly morality is so often driven by guilt these days. I mean, a lot of the um, anti-racism rhetoric at the moment is about trying to make people feel guilty, even for things that they haven't actually done. But Paul drives us with grace. I believe that there is racism in our society. And I believe that there is such a thing as white fragility, which doesn't like talking about it and gets all defensive about it. But I do not think that critical race theory has the answer to that problem. Only the gospel has the answer to that problem. A lot of the uh, the green agenda in our world is driven by fear. Many economic agendas and programmes are fueled by greed. So much of our politics is characterised by anger and division and hatred. The response is not to take refuge in self-interest, but to be trained by grace to change. Grace teaches us a better way and it teaches us in a better way too. Did you notice that? Grace doesn't beat us up or bind us. It liberates. It loosens. The gospel of grace, that's what we need. The gospel of grace, it does have things to say to our society. It does have things to say about caring for the planet, about the vile sins of racism about how to share our wealth, about how to deal with our class differences, about how to care for those who are different. The world is not wrong to see all those things as things of concern. But it needs the gospel of grace to be brought to bear on those matters, because that alone has the real answer. We need grace to save us and to train us, rather than letting the world set our agenda and dictate our tactics. Those who repent and believe the gospel are not dirty 
and stained, but purified by Christ. We're not controlled or defiled by sin anymore. And we do good works on that basis, not to purge ourselves of guilt or shame or to try and earn God's favour somehow, but because we've already been forgiven. The gospel The gospel, therefore, it's not about shaming other people by exposing them and no platforming them and trolling them on Twitter until they do what you want and give in to your demands. The gospel is about living for the one who gave himself up for us, being good so that they're ashamed to behave like that towards us. So. Brothers and sisters, tell people that. Tell people that, because this is a far better message than they're going to get from the false teachers or from the world around us, our cancel culture. The gospel is the best cause in the world. It is the best cause in the world to give your time to, to give your life to. So let's let's give them grace and tell the world about our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip us with everything good, that we may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.